This is episode number 974 with the inspirational Laverne Cox. Welcome to the School of Greatness. My name is Lewis Howes, a former pro athlete turned lifestyle entrepreneur. And each week we bring you an inspiring person or message to help you discover how to unlock your inner greatness. Thanks for spending some time with me today. Now let the class begin. start today with two quotes from Maya Angelou. The first, you alone are enough. You have nothing to prove to anyone. And secondly, nothing can dim the light that shines from within. Today's guest needs no introduction, but I'll give her one anyways. Laverne Cox is a three-time Emmy Award-nominated actress and Emmy-winning producer and the executive producer of the new Netflix documentary, Disclosure, a film which explains how transgender people have been depicted in film and television over the past century. Laverne is a pioneering transgender activist with a staggering list of accomplishments and acknowledgments, including being the first openly transgender person to grace the cover of Time magazine and the first to be nominated for a primetime Emmy in an acting category. Our conversation was so powerful and profound and at times painful, and I did not want it to end. We talked about Laverne's ongoing process of healing childhood trauma and what we can learn from her approach, why people wear masks all the time, and how essential it is to shed those masks no matter how hard it is to do, how we are all destined for beautiful things as long as we show up for them, and why the most important work in life is finding how to accept yourself and own who you are. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited to share this conversation with you. And if you're finding value in Laverne's wisdom, make sure you share this with someone who needs to hear it. You have the power to change someone's life by sending them this message today. And a quick reminder, click that subscribe button on Apple Podcasts. Whether you listen frequently or if this is your first time here, just click on that subscribe button right now so you can be notified every week of hearing great people like Laverne. And please leave us a rating and review if you're a fan and you haven't left one yet. We'd love to read those after every episode. And just one more thing before we dive in. We taped this interview before I got a chance to watch Disclosure. But I have to say that it's a truly incredible, impactful documentary. And please find the time to go watch it. All right, I'm so excited about this. Let's dive in with the one, the only, Laverne Cox. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone if you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Measure that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. 
It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. One of my favorite parts about my job is that I get the opportunity to travel a lot. And in fact, I'm recording this right now while I'm in Mexico. And actually, I was thinking about something that I wanted to share because I get a lot of questions from so many people about different side hustle ideas. So here's one for those of you out there that are on the go a lot like I am or traveling a lot. When you're staying in your Airbnb on your trips, have you ever thought about how you could be making extra money by hosting through Airbnb while your home is vacant? If you're interested in an extra stream of income, Airbnb hosting is an easy place to start and it's like giving your home some company while you're away your home might be worth more than you think find out how much at airbnb.com slash host so listen we all know life is full of yada yada like those quote unquote free trials that somehow still charge your card for something or when companies have those sneaky gotchas hiding deep in the fine print and i know you've dealt with yada yada before like those bills that keep going up and up for no reason at all or when budget airlines promise a cheap fare but then charge you for every little thing until you realize you're paying more than you would have somewhere else and yes it is possible to outsmart yada yada like triple checking airline deals to make sure all you need is all already included, but you don't take yada yada in life. So don't take yada yada from your wireless provider. Metro by T-Mobile has no contracts, no credit checks, no surprises, and nada yada yada. Stop by one of over 6,000 Metro stores nationwide. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Welcome, everyone, to the School of Greatness podcast. I'm super excited about our guest today. Three-time Emmy-nominated actress and Emmy award-winning producer Laverne Cox with a new documentary on Netflix, which is going to blow you away, called Disclosure. Welcome to the show. I'm super glad that you're here. I'm so excited to finally be here. We've been talking I, about this for a minute. <laughs> probably, we, we connected, I don't know, probably three years ago. I think when I wrote my book, The Mask of Masculinity, and I did the interview with Brene Brown, mm-hmm. somewhere around then, and we ended up having lunch together at, uh, here in Los Angeles, having a great conversation about masculinity, about transgender uh, statistics, about your life, about everything. And I think it's the perfect time that we finally got to connect at least over Zoom, and share a conversation with people. You've had such an incredible life and so much that you've overcome personally, so much you've had to overcome in an industry of entertainment, so much you've had to overcome with, I guess, really just understanding people making assumptions about gender, about gender identity, about racism, about everything. Growing up in the South, I mean, there's just a lot that you've overcome and you've inspired Mm -hmm. so many people from being on the cover of Time Magazine to being a hit star on TV shows and producer and all these things now. So I'm just grateful for the example you set on what's possible for human beings and what's possible for transgender individuals and how you continue to show up with love, with gratitude, and with humility. And I think it's, it's beautiful 
mm-hmm. everything you're up to. So it's so sweet, Lewis. Thank you. I appreciate that. Of course. <laughs> and I love this. You actually have a, a, a quote on your site that I want to find really quick that talks about uh, you, you seem like a personal development coach in my mind because of some of the things you say that you're so into Brene Brown. And you said, if we can move from scarcity to abundance in our rhetoric and the ways we see ourselves and each other in the world, I think that we can live in this world together because there is enough to go around. I love the way just you think, and I love the way that you just show up in the world. So again, I can't sing your praises enough from our interaction together. I'm curious for people that are listening or watching, Mm-hmm. who are ignorant to the transgender community. Are there any basic statistics? And I have some here that I've been researching. Are there any basic statistics that you would want all people to just know from a baseline that this is necessary for human beings to know about the transgender community? Oh, gosh. I don't know if, if, if when I think about what's necessary for people to know, I don't know if I'd go to statistics. Okay. I think I probably would go to the lived experiences of trans people. Mm. Um, I think it's a quote Brene Brown again, stories are data with the soul. So if we can, um, Brene Brown, um, if we can lean into people's lived experiences and, and people's humanity, I think that's what I want people to know about trans people because there's not just one way to be trans. There's not just one trans experience. And so you can't, um, meet a trans person and say, oh, I, I heard Laverne Cox on a podcast and this is what I should ask you and this is what your experience must be based on what she said. Everyone is different. Every individual is different and everyone experiences their gender in a different way. And I think that's a beautiful, awesome thing. Some people fit neatly into male and female and that's great. Mm. Some people are non-binary and so they don't like they like they them pronouns they don't they feel both male and female or neither male nor female and that's cool and some people are like all of it's good i was talking to a dear friend of mine on saturday who likes whatever gender pronoun you want to use they're fine with all of them because it's like whatever and i think that is really a space of freedom if we can lean into that and not be afraid of that because if you just if you just say it without any sort of it's really not a big deal. So I think that the thing I would want folks to know is that every trans person is different and that every person's experience, whether you're transgender or not, of your gender is probably different as well. And that is all good. Yeah. And you talk, you know, you shared the story with me and I know you shared it publicly that you, when you were 11, you tried to commit suicide. And I'm curious, when did you start to feel comfortable in your own body? Do you remember, was there like a moment where you said, I feel comfortable with who I am. Was there someone or something who was kind of critical in you ultimately accepting yourself? It's, in, it's been incremental. If, I'm, if the truth is, is that I, it's, it's a process and it's been a process over the years. And I think an acting teacher of mine, Brad Cafeteria, says, this, says that um, sort of getting to the core of who we are, sort of like seven layer bean dip, you sort of get, you feel comfortable with this one layer and you can sort of peel that back and there's another layer and then there's another layer under that. And so it's a process. And so I'm, I'm getting there in a way I feel more comfortable with in my own scanning with my body than I ever have before. But I think, and I don't like to talk about about the specifics of my medical transition, but there was definitely a moment when I had a feminizing surgery, I'll say, that like, I was like, oh, <laughs> like, yes. Uh, so yeah, that, so, that, so, that, so the point of that is that healthcare is really, really important, access to healthcare mm. for everyone, really. I'm Medicare for all. Um, but also um, for trans folks, it's really, 
in my own experience, it has just been incredible. It's really been wonderful. And so there was a, that was a moment when I just like, I felt this shift and I just was like, oh my God, this is like, this is what it's, well, this is what it really? is. And the, but then that, but then there's always internal work that needs to be done, right? There's always work that, because um, it's an inside job ultimately, but, but what, when the outside starts to match, it is definitely like, ah, it, 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 it's, a re- it's a relief. It's a, it's a, I think it's ultimately for me, my transition has been about, it's been such a spiritual journey that it's just, it's, it's like a release. It's like a relaxation, like right, being able to um, medically transition for me. Not all trans people want to medically transition. There's different definitions of that for every person, but it's just like this, like it's a, it's peace. It's pace, mm. Italian pace. It, it just is peace. Just like, ah. <sighs> I like, I like, okay. What, when, when was this? How, I mean, how many years? What oh age, gosh, range. that particularly, I started my medical transition in 1998. Wow. I was 26 years old when I started the medical part of, of transition. I didn't have my first surgery until seven years after that because I couldn't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything, and, and be, except for my hormone replacement therapy, every aspect of my transition, I've actually paid for out of pocket, which is... Um, it's amazing, but it's but if that but that means when I was waiting tables, <laughs> barely paying my rent in New York, that that took a really long time yeah. um, to be able to sort of put money together. And I've been very lucky because some people are never able to put the money together, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I pay, and ideally our healthcare should be covering some of this stuff, I think. But I'm very blessed that I've been able to. And, um, to That's great. That's great. Stuff. Yeah. Do you feel like, I hear you saying like the work is always happening. You're always diving into the inner work. Do you feel like, I'm a big fan of talking about healing trauma because I feel like it's a, you might heal it in a big moment of your life, but then triggers come up every couple of years mm-hmm. that you realize, okay, I'm fully not healed. How do I keep doing the work? Do you feel like you still have trauma you need to heal? And is this something Absolutely. that a lot of transgender friends of yours, uh, you feel like is is hard for them to overcome healing trauma? I think it's hard for most of us to overcome healing trauma. Uh, and literally my, the th- my therapeutic process, I'm in therapy tomorrow. What gift of quarantine and this whole sort of COVID thing, I went, before quarantine, I was like, I would do therapy when I was in LA, I would see my therapist and I was, we were good about it, but like I have stretches of time where I'd be on the road and miss therapy for like a couple months. I've done therapy every week via video chat. I'm in quarantine and I'm so proud of that. And it works mm. if you work it. Uh, That's true. I, and so the therapy that I do with somatic therapy and it's, and it's based in the community resiliency model, which is all about resetting your nervous system. It's all about building trauma resilience. And so there's healing from trauma, but then there's resilience to trauma. And the community wow. resiliency model, community resiliency model has six components that, um, or six tools, basically skills, they call it skills. And if folks go to, um, there's an app called iChill, iChill, that um, sort of outlines the um, six um, tools of the community resiliency model. Their um, gesturing is one, it's using a gesture. It's all about um, connecting to your body and, um, sensing things through your body somatically. So gesturing is a, it's, it's a physical thing. There's a help, help now is about sort of grounding yourself in, 
in a space. It could be a smell. It could be um, the touch of something. It could be sort of pushing against the wall, something that can get you um, back in your resilient zone. I, the idea is to stay in your resilience zone. There's a resilient zone. There's a low zone and a high zone, all based on the nervous system. You want to stay in that sort of resilient place. Mm. Um, resourcing is, a, is another tool. Um, resourcing is usually um, focusing on something that's mutual and pleasant in your life. Um, it could be, for me, often it's Leontine Price's voice. She's an opera singer. It's her mm. voice singing or, you know, the last time I was in love and what that sensation felt like when I was being held or cuddled or resources that can live in your body, in your nervous system that you can draw on. It's all there. You know, mm. we just have to allow ourselves to lean into re those resources. Shift and stay is crucial. Shift and stay is a tool where you um, basically, like I, I might walk into a therapy session or go into a Zoom therapy session. And I'm like, oh, I'm feeling really anxious today. And Jennifer, my therapist would be like, well, where in your body do you feel that most? And usually my anxiety like sort of exists in the pit of my stomach. Mm -hmm. And she'll invite me to ask, well, where in your body does it feel neutral or positive? And oftentimes right now, it's like, often it's my ankles. Or I was gonna say my, my toe or something. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll like, she'll still invite me to put my attention on my toe or my ankle. And sometimes I'm like, you know, twirling my ankle around now and I'll put my attention there and then we'll talk a little bit more and then she'll ask me how is the anxiety feeling now is it less is it the same and almost invariably every time it's lessened it's still there but there's something else that's true as well there's there, so we're in the space of shifted states about both hands it's mm -hmm. about like not not getting rid of the anxiety altogether, but like allowing the re resilience is about what else is true. Mm. Trauma resilience is about what else is true and putting it in its, its proper place. Uh, healing from trauma is really about not being overly defined by the trauma, but then not being in denial about it. That acknowledging mm -hmm. that the trauma happened, but that it's in its proper place in, in your timeline. I had a, when I bought this place, it's a it's condo two years ago, when I went into escrow, I started having major panic attacks. Like, just Why? exactly <laughs> crazy <laughs> panic attacks and so i was in therapy just shaking and i was a mess what was going on and like and i couldn't even breathe i couldn't see straight it was crazy i was it was full on anxiety attack and what kept coming up for me is what kept coming oh god it's so emotional still but what kept coming up for me is i it was the eviction notice i had gotten uh, in 2012 in new york i was living in decent rent in manhattan but like i was working in a restaurant and business was slow and i couldn't pay my rent and i had an eviction notice and i had to go to housing court to avoid getting wow. evicted it was the second eviction notice i had gotten in two years and so i had so much shame about it and buying a place like brought up all the shame gremlin of who do you think you are who do you think you are buying this fancy condo fancy compared to like you know the 315 square foot apartment i had in new york that i couldn't <laughs> pay for who do you think you are <laughs> buying this fancy fancy condo in la you're gonna f it up you're gonna you know ruin everything and just that but then it was a, it was a childhood incident underneath that as we started to explore in, in therapy and like get into this place of like, I mean, I had to, I really had to use the help now to even be able to hear Jennifer talk to me because I was in such like panic, anxiety, high zone, mm. stress. And then it was a childhood incident that I still can't talk about publicly, probably never will. There's a deep, deep fear of being home, becoming homeless. Wow. That goes to a childhood abandonment thing. So, we had to like sort of parse all that out, right? And, yeah. and that's ultimately a childhood trauma that like 
sort of replicated this trauma into my adulthood as I, you know, if that's triggered by me buying a condo. And the beautiful thing about after we were able to process it with Jennifer, process it in my body, do resourcing around it, do a lot of work, somatic work around it, do some EDMR or whatever it's called mm, yeah, around yeah. it. Um, EMDR is what it's called, EDMR, yeah, yeah. I, whatever it's called. Yes. <laughs> I hear doing, it's great, yes. Doing work around it, just lightly. I haven't delved deep into that yet. The next week, she was like, I was on to something else. And she was like, we haven't you know, talked about that. How is that feeling? And I said to her, I still have the sensations of it, but it doesn't feel like it's happening right now. Mm. And that's the, it, it feels like it, it's in the past. And that's the thing about trauma. The nervous system does not know if a trauma happened 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Once we are triggered, the nervous system feels like the trauma is happening right now. And so the, and the thing of healing from trauma, creating resilience around trauma is putting the trauma within the right timeline of our lives. And that is very delicate work that has to be done with a professional girl. <laughs> I call everybody girl. I'm not offended. <laughs> Girl is a new dude. And yeah, it's, it's very delicate work that has to be done with a professional. But it is so, it's so beautiful to be able to be in this space of resilience around these things. Yes, these, yes, a lot of, I've had a lot of unfortunate things happen to me. But I don't need to be defined by those things. I'm not in denial of them, but I, they don't define me either. Mm, I love that. Yeah, not being in denial of what happened in the past. I think I, when I sat with you and talked about when I was sexually abused when I was five, I didn't, I didn't deny it, but I didn't talk about it. And I was shameful of it and I was embarrassed by it. And I held on to this pain. And when I would get triggered enough times, I would release that pain and anger on, onto reacting to people, screaming, getting in fistfights in the basketball court to, you know, putting in my aggression out in sports. And when sports was over and I no longer had a three hour window of, legally being able to hit people with a helmet helmet to helmet was like what do i do now when i'm triggered and i think when we talked and sat you know i talked about how i had like a seven eight year journey after sports was done of putting that into business and into work and into everything else and still not being fulfilled until i finally started to release and talk about being sexually abused which put me down the rabbit hole of Brene brown and vulnerability and and really the, the pain that men are experiencing and then causing pain on other people in the world are using pain with their power. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.
Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. To hurt people, hurt people. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why we connected and why I think we wanted to talk now is how do you think in your perspective from your experiences, why do you think uh, men cause a lot of the pain on transgender women and on human beings in general. Why do you think that is? I mean, it's bigger than the trans community. I think hurt people hurt people. Mm. But I also think there's, I mean, I think there's, a, there's the sort of neurobiological sort of take on things, the, you know, the fight, flight, or freeze piece. But I think what, what, are, what are men taught in inter- and what do they internalize around masculinity, around what it means to be a real man, around, um, power and exerting power in the world and over other people. Like, I think we as a culture have to, in a way, take responsibility. You know, it's, it's weird because like I, you know, we don't want to blame mothers, but like what are, or, or fathers or parents in general, but what are we teaching our children? And particularly what are we teaching the men, men that we're raising about masculinity and and what that means and i think there needs to be a critique i mean so there's a theoretical thing around masculinity and patriarchy and you know everybody when i say patriarchy i mean institutional um sexism and i think there needs to be a critique of patriarchy i think that that like some that 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 there needs to be an awareness of like male domination and like how the, and the pain that that can wreak, and particularly when I think about domestic violence, when I think about the, my grandfather was so um, abusive to my to my grandmother, to his children, insanely abusive. But I understand that now in the context of he was raised on a plantation and he was beaten to work, and that's what he grew up with. And so then that 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 kind of brutality is passed along, passed down from generation to generation if we don't stop those cycles. So there's that piece of it too. So there's a lot of elements of it, but I think at the core of it is the piece of vulnerability, internalized homophobia, and internalized transphobia. Because I think so much of what is underneath so much patriarchy is is a, an underlying misogyny that I don't want to be seen as soft or like a woman, or I don't want to seem gay. And I think that is a lot of the reasons why men who are killing trans women are killing us. It's because they don't want people to think they're gay. I think I can't I always think about the story of a trans woman. I think it was 2014. Her name was Mercedes Williamson. She was about, I think she was like a 17, 18-year-old trans woman in Mississippi. She was dating a guy, I forget his name, but it doesn't matter. And he was um, a member of a gang called the Latin Kings. And they dated for a while, like her friends knew, there's a um, BBC documentary about it actually. And he eventually, they broke up and then he eventually murdered Mercedes. And apparently so his gang members wouldn't find out that he had been dating her. Wow. Um, and now... At one point, he confessed to having knowingly dated her, knowing that she was trans, right? There's a, there's a big sort of myth that men, that, that trans women are out tricking men, and that's why we get murdered. That's, that's ridiculous. Um, there's, in 2020, we don't, there are so many men seeking out trans women. There's no need 
my dance card is full. It's right. thank you very much. <laughs> it's beautiful. <laughs> so, but but the sad thing is, he, now he denies that he knew that she was trans. But then earlier counts, you know, he whatever. But we know his friends of hers say that he definitely knew that she was trans and that he murdered her because he didn't want his colleague gang to find out. And so when I think about that, I think obviously gang culture is its own specific thing, right? In terms of of masculinity, in terms of whatever, who cares? Mm -hmm. Who cares? And I, and I had, um, Two ex-boyfriends ago, what, what, what crystallized for me, he, he was Canadian and we dated for three and a half years. He was a lovely man. And when he was in high school in Vancouver, he, there were rumors about him being gay that went around. And he sort of fanned the flames of that. He thought it was really funny that people thought he was gay. And so when we started dating, he didn't care. Like he knew that he wasn't gay. He knew that he knew that I'm a woman and he's a man and that, that that's not gay. And he was very comfortable with himself. So it didn't matter. And it just crystallized to me so much that a man who dates me has to be so comfortable with himself that he doesn't care if people think he's gay. And then I was just, then I realized that that is the issue. That like all the men who are attracted to trans women, and there are many who are, who don't want anyone to know about it, are afraid that people are going to think they're gay. Why do those men hold that shame of not wanting other people to know or make fun of them or whatever the the shame is. I think it's internalized homophobia, but I I think sometimes it's internalized. They don't want people to think they're gay because usually people, because people disavow the womanhood of trans women. So then they assume our partners must be gay because they don't accept me as a woman. Mm -hmm. And so the man has to be comfortable with that. But then I think there's also the piece of even if he's comfortable with that, the potential loss of social privilege and power. I think wow. so many of them, even if they're comfortable, it's uh, one guy that I dated years ago when we started dating, he said he was cool and then he got really weird. And I found out years later, even though there were different situations, he was in insurance and he was in, in risk management. And there was a guy in his firm, people found out he was gay and he was ostracized. He was wow. made fun of and harassed so badly that he ended up quitting. And he saw that, he saw that while he's starting to date me and that freaked him out. It freaked him out to such an extent that he needed to um, distance himself. So the ways in which our culture may punish men, oh, the old boy network too. I mean, living in New York and dating all the Wall Street guys that I dated, the old boy network is still real. It's still a thing. And like having the potential for career advancement being stifled, all the men in the entertainment industry, right, who are who I know and the girl trans women know are secretly dating trans women, right? They're hiring trans sex workers and men hire sex workers for all sorts of reasons. And they're, but they're, we know they're sleeping with trans women on the DL, like a mm. lot of men in show business, right? We know in the industry, we know, I know them. Those, though all those men who I know are attracted to trans women, they might not be attracted to me, that's fine. But it's just amazing to me that men in my industry never approach me. Like high profile men never approach me. I have profile men though I know are into trans women as a rather high profile trans woman. And so much of Why that, is that? I think part of it is about inter- the internalized homophobia and people, them not wanting people to think they're gay. But I think it's also just about loss of power, also about loss of status mm. and privilege. And like, because what does it mean if you are, particularly if you are a white, straight white man and like, the world is your oyster. And I know there are difficulties that straight white men have. We can talk about some of those and it's not all, you know, but the world is your oyster, presumably. And then all of a sudden you find that you're attracted to a woman who's transgender and all of the baggage that, that comes with that from society if you haven't done your work on yourself. Or you could lose 
I don't know if you're a leading man or if you're a rapper or and you have all these uh, women fans that you might lose if they find out that you're, you know, having sex with Laverne Cox or some other trans woman. So I think a lot of it's about the loss of privilege and power, yeah. too. And people, and unfortunately, people kill for that as well. Unfortunately, people want power and privilege so badly that they're willing to kill for it. It's crazy. What is the, I mean, this is something that, I grew up with in the fact of I'll speak from my experience because I don't want to put this as all like young boys growing up, whatever. All we can do is speak from my own experience. Exactly. I'm, theor- I'm theorizing over here. I can exactly. <laughs> and, and my experience from certain memories in elementary school, middle school and high school specifically when it was transitioning, let's say there's never like a moment you become a man except for like rituals that maybe like boy groups do with each other, you know, for example, like what, what kind of I don't know. Like, did you have sex? Did you, uh, you know, can you drive a car? Can you drink alcohol? It's like that. It, those kind of moments that might be, okay, now you're a man because now you smoked a cigarette. Now you got drunk. Now you, which I've never been drunk or high in my life, but I remember just like these moments, right. Where it was like, Oh, you're not a man unless you do this, this kind of feeling. And I remember, I was a very sensitive kid and I cried a lot, went to my mom and, you know, in the middle of the night and was always very scared and just sensitive. My, my sisters would always call me the sensitive jock because I would go out and destroy people on the football field, but then I would go, you know, play guitar and sing lullabies or something, right? I was, I had this emotional side to me. And I remember just being like a very affectionate human being. Like I would want to put my arm around my teammates and just give them a hug. And I remember vividly so many teammates shoving me away with like this anger in their eyes and their face being like, don't be gay. Don't be a little girl. Don't be X, Y, and Z. Where do you think that came from for them? When, when, did, that, when did that become a thing that like my teammate, we, I got to, what do you I, think? I think you're talking about it in the sense that we all need to take responsibility from whether it's their fathers, their mothers saying, you know, little boys don't cry, whatever it is, the words they heard from their parents or that they saw from their family members or the or media of everything, the, the media, media. Yeah. Which what, you know, your documentary talks about a lot of the, the depiction of, uh, or, or the perception of transgender people for, over time in, in, in TV and film. And I think it's just these, these social norms, like you said, a hundred years ago when someone was being beaten a certain way and, then they did that in their relationship and then their kids saw it. I think it's just these social norms we see over time, which is why it's, in my opinion, powerful that so many people are awakening during this time to what has happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not comfortable. I think it's, it's, but it's also very uncomfortable to come into this space of, oh my, I didn't know, I, I, I didn't know this. I didn't realize what I was doing was hurting someone. I didn't realize what I was doing was hurting myself. Yeah. And the pain of that and sitting with the discomfort of that Very without painful. numbing it, without numbing it, right? Without going to our phone, without drinking or doing a drug or beating somebody up. Like mm-hmm. to really sit with discomfort is so, and I think now, I feel like the, the world is changing and it's becoming more spiritual, it's becoming more, that we, can, we need to be able to sit with the discomfort of, what, of everything that we've done to ourselves and each other if we want to be able to change it. That's and it's so- Man, it, that's hard. It, it's very hard. It's very hard. But I think it, that what's on the other side is so glorious. Oh, yeah. What is it? Because you, are you really free? Are you really free if you 
have a longing to be with a certain kind of woman and you don't want to, you won't be with her because of what someone else is going to think about you. Is that freedom? That's not, freedom. it's not freedom, but it's, yeah. it's social suicide in other ways, which mm-hmm. is a different type of prison. Sometimes for certain about people. Some, some people aren't able to change their circumstances, but sometimes we can change our circle. Sometimes yes. I think like, uh, you know, Oh God, here I, here I go with the Brene Brown again, but Brene Brown says that tr- the, True belonging, you don't have true belonging. The opposite of true belonging is fitting in. Then yeah. when you try to fit in, you shape shift, you do everything you can so that yeah. other people can accept you, but that's not authenticity. True belonging is when you show up and allow yourself to be seen and you and people like may be into that. Yeah. May not be, but it's one of the scariest do, things to do though. But you get to belong to yourself, and it's and it's lonelier because it's definitely lonelier because I you know I don't have like all like this big social circle, and I'm, I like I like my alone time too. Yeah, yeah. To be honest, but it's a it's way more beautiful to be able to I, be in the truth of who you are than the shape shift. Because I've done the shape shift, trust and believe. I've done the shape shift, and I just feel yucky afterwards. Well, I here's, feel like I, I get it. Why did I do that? And why do I even want these people in my life? I'm shape shifting for people who are. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) This is one of the reasons why, you know, when I started to really start the process of healing, start the process of um, sharing my shame to my family, then friends, then I started opening up publicly and and sharing more about sexual abuse and trauma and things like that. I put, I realized that I was putting on masks, you know, we, we shape shift or we put, I call it the mask of masculinity, which is what men's true essence is not having this dominance in this power and projecting something that's not their true essence uh, as human beings, whether you're a man, woman, transgender, you're non-binary, whatever, human being, it's not to put on a mask, it's to step into who you truly are. The challenge is, and, and I can't speak to the challenge from what you went through, but as a transgender individual, if you say to your parents who have a very traditional outlook on life, I'm you know, the opposite sex, or this is who I really am, and you say that at nine, 10, 11, and they say, no, or they send you away or they make you wrong and bad, you have to almost try to fit in to survive, right? Until, until you can be free, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think that is the sad thing about my childhood for a while. I was never really good at fitting in. And, and, and ultimately, eventually my mother just kind of let me be in terms of just dress. I, was, I became, when I started dressing myself in middle school, they got, it wasn't so gender nonconforming. When I went to high school, then I really started wearing women's and girls clothes. I didn't identify as trans, but we would probably use the t- language of non-binary or gender nonconforming. So you were wearing women's clothes in high school? Correct. Like not dresses. In yet, Alabama. In Alabama. I, th- I went to FM School of Fine Arts in Birmingham, which is four hours north of my hometown. Uh-huh. And I started going to the Salvation Army in Goodwill. And so I started wearing culottes and wide leg bell bottoms. And I started shopping in the girls department um, of thrift stores. And yeah, that's what I did. And I started wearing makeup in high school, but I also had a shaved head. So I wore makeup and I, you know, lashes and I started shaving my eyebrows. And- now in the... <laughs> I guess you went to a, you say a fine arts uh, school? Alabama, yeah, an arts school. Alabama so, school of fine arts. So was this school more accepting since it was a fine arts school? Was it a lot of yes and no. shaming I mean, I, still? Was I, it- a lot of, my freshman and sophomore year, lots of shame. A lot, a lot of shaming. A lot. I think part of it is that I was an underclass person mm-hmm. but i think because that's just kind of how you underclassmen are just bullied in general yeah <laughs> exactly but i also think that it was that i 
people still, even in art school, it was, it was a lot for people, at least at the time, at least in Alabama. And I think some of it, and I look back and I think a lot of it had to do with race as well. I, there weren't a lot of black kids, at least in the dorms at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. So a lot, some of it was race. I think it was race. I think it was, I was there on scholarship. So I think it was race, it was class, it was me being mm-hmm. me. And so I think it was a lot of things, which is really wow. deep when I, when I think, look back on it. And I definitely internalized a lot of shame around class, around race, and um, my gender expression that was at the Alabama School of Fine Arts. That's interesting. We, yeah. we have something in common there. I went to a boarding school in high school as well, so. Oh yeah, which one? I went to a, like a, a Christian, I went to a school for a religion that I grew up in for Christian scientists. It's just the, I have to always preference, it's the opposite of Scientology. Okay. But it's a, it's the, it's a, a boarding school in St. Louis, Missouri for uh, students of this religion, Christian science. And so I went to this boarding school. I lived in a boy's dorm with a hundred other kids and there was a girl's dorm across campus. It was mm-hmm. always trying to like sneak out and, you know, get into the window of a girl and say hi or whatever. It was like that whole thing, but uh, strict yeah. and everything. But I wanted to bring back and I, something, cause you talked about, I think it was really important was just why do kind of the younger male generation say, don't be gay. Don't be a girl. Don't be, you know, not show who they truly are, which was me. I wanted to be affectionate with my guy friends. I'm a straight guy. I never wanted to kiss a man, but I wanted to like, just put my arm around a buddy and just say like, Hey man, I love you as a, as a human being. And I I didn't feel like I could ever say that or Mm -hmm. ever show just like normal, non-sexual affection, which is what I would call it, I guess. Just like you do that now. Do you have people in your life where you can do that? I only hang out with people that I can do that with because I have that ability now. And I also, there was, I, I want to make sure I get it right, but I think it was the show 13 Reasons Why. Is that what it was on Netflix? Yeah. Where there was the, the man. I, still I have still haven't seen, but tell me. Oh, well, I don't want to ruin it for you, but there was a, it's, you know, there was a, a, a high school athlete, football player who is bullying and gay people, right? And making fun of gay people. And we later find out that he's actually gay. Mm-hmm. But he's actually the one bullying them, beating them up in the halls and kind of projecting this masculinity And I think a lot of, and you're asking me like, why do people do that in high school? And I think some people are afraid of being bullied themselves for those affections, right? And so they they deflect. Unfortunately, a lot of the bullying I experienced um, when I around between 10 and like 14 was, it was sexualized. And I don't know. Really? I don't know if it was because the guys were gay or if it just was like, a way to humiliate me or I, I don't know, but it was, it was bad. It was, yeah. it was bad. And so, yeah, so I don't know what the mind of, it'd be great to, you know, talk to someone, you know, who's gone through that journey of being shameful. And I have talked to a few of my guy friends over the years who had shame around being into trans women and sort of come out on the other side. And so mm-hmm. much of that was, um, in acting, and uh, Susan Batson, my acting mentor, has this um, theory around human behavior. When we create characters, we have to, it's about understanding human behavior. And she says that a character's tragic flaw is when the, there's tension between the public persona and the unfulfilled need. That in the unfulfilled need is um, that every, everyone has that we've developed around the age of five years old. And often we act as human beings in opposition to what we really need. And so that tension often expresses itself in addictive behavior and potentially bullying or character deflects or tragic flaws. And I was just thinking about like that tension 
between the unfulfilled need and the public persona. Like that is the, the space of like not allowing ourselves to be fully authentic, not allowing mm-hmm. ourselves to be, um, it's a tragic flaw if you can't be in the truth of who you are. Right. And, it's just, and, it, and it's a constant tension unless you accept, unless you accept yourself. Did you feel like you were truly accepting yourself and who you fully were? Were you being that in your 20s and 30s? While in kind of New York City, you know, working? I was late- trying. I was trying. Yeah. I think because I was an artist, I, I was been on this journey as an artist. I think a lot of this is about being an artist, my sort of personal growth stuff. Mm-hmm. I think I was trying, I was doing my best, but I think I had so much trauma. And so I built up so many defenses, so many sort of... Um, so much armor because to, uh, to shield myself from vulnerability. And so it was, I was mm. doing the best I could, but I needed to, I needed to I need the right therapist. I needed the right recovery program. I needed the right things to uh, other tools to lean into. Because when I, I think surviving my childhood, as a childhood, I was, I was severely bullied, deeply traumatized, didn't feel loved or wanted or like I fit in or anywhere. And I just, and I got through it, but I got through it with all of these defenses in place. I had to, the only way to survive it was I had to like build up this elaborate defense. And so in my twenties and thirties, you know, I really, this work really started for me, I think 10 years ago was when I really kind of was like, okay, what let's let's look at what's really going on and so i think that what i know about my 20s and 30s is that i was doing the best i could to survive and that that and when you know better you do better and so i don't have any regrets about mm-hmm. any of that i'm like i these are the things i needed to do there were no tools. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't know how to meditate. I right. didn't have community resiliency model. I didn't have Brene Brown's like, you know, shame resilience work. I, there was no, there's none of that. I had my cover. I had my elaborate cover and my armor your, your mask, and yeah. my, my mask. And that's what I wore until I could get it. Isn't it interesting when I started to, I had a lot of, I guess, let's call it business success in my late twenties wearing masks. Mm-hmm. But I felt deeply unfulfilled, deeply disconnected from other people and felt a, sense, a lack of purpose, to be honest. I was like making all this money and I overcame this adversity and accomplished things. But I was like, why am I still unhappy? And it wasn't until literally the moment I shared being sexually abused for the first time in my life, 25 years of holding in that secret, that's when things started to shift. It took time and seven years later of opening up, it's still a, a work in progress of healing and not being triggered and all these things. But it was like, wow, I just launched this podcast. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door. Where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at oceocean.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent. Being there day and night and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. 
podcast and a whole new brand and everything started to expand in my life. Opportunities became more effortless and abundance, which I know you talk about being more abundant mindset as opposed to scarcity. And it sounds like to me, as you started to step into who you fully are and becoming more authentic of owning yourself and believing in who you are and not wearing these armors, it sounds like that's when you got Orange is the New Black, shortly after that, a couple of years, yeah. and everything started to unfold. But, but even before that, the, the difference between you and me, there's a lot of differences <laughs> I would suggest, <laughs> is that when you're an artist, you actually, I don't think it works to be an artist, particularly an actor, not being authentic. You, kind you of have, have to be vulnerable. Be, you right? actually have to be vulnerable. You have to be authentic when you're an artist. And I, but, I, but my life definitely changed in 2007 when a woman named Candace Kane became the first openly transgender actor to have a recurring role in a primetime television show, a show called Dirty Sexy Money. And at that moment, I believed it was possible to be openly transgender and to be an actor. Up until then, I was, people knew that I was trans, but I wasn't really disclosing. And I was trying to have a career as an actor without disclosing my transness. When I started owning my transness, everything changed in my, in my career. Mm. Everything changed in my life. And then, taking it to a next, the next level with um, my work with Brad Calcaterra. And, and he started this act, act Out class 10 years ago. He calls it Act Out for LGBTQ actors, where we got to deal with all the specific blocks of, that we created in our instruments around being LGBTQI. And that's when I really started to own, not just own my transness externally, but to own the trauma, it was another layer of healing the trauma and the shame of, mm. of my childhood and of my young adulthood um, that was necessary for me to be able to step into the purpose, the reason that I, that I, that I am here, that Orange is the New Black opened up for me. Yeah. That makes where, do you, sense. where do you think you'd be today if you didn't start owning it and, and fully accepting and fully being vulnerable, I guess, 10, 11, 12 years ago. Where do you think you'd be now if you didn't do that? I don't know if I'd be alive. Wow. I honestly don't know if I'd even be, be here. Or if I were here, I'd be, I'd be deeply unhappy, lost. It's just, it's a scary thought, honestly. I mean, it just, it scares me because it just, it feels like, I think I was in such a, I was in a place where I would have sabotaged. I, if, if anything good came, I would have found a way to sabotage it. And so, I mean, it's kind of a miracle that I haven't, like, you know, that, like, that, that I haven't, like, all the lovely, amazing things that have come in my life, I haven't sabotaged them. Because I think that I didn't, I don't think I thought I deserved it. I didn't think I, I don't think I thought that I was worthy. Really? Honestly, oh, my God, yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. I did not think that I deserved nice things because the whole world told me I didn't deserve nice things wow. and nice things. Love. I mean, the love piece too is so deep when you feel like you are, I mean, shame for Nay Brown defines shame is the intense, intensely painful belief that one has about themselves that they're unworthy of connection and belonging. Um, she says guilt is I'm sorry. I made a mistake and shame is I'm sorry. I am a mistake. Oh, it's deep sense, this deep feeling of unworthiness on a deep core level yeah, I was there. And I, I and, and Lewis, I'm not there today. I feel a deep, I really, and this is a beautiful thing about quarantine too. I, I spent so much time in the beginning, particularly really delving deep spiritually and meditating and journaling and trying to get clear about what, what, what my, what lessons I'm supposed to learn from this. And I, I do, I do feel worthy of love. I do feel worthy of belonging, you know, mm. and, and that is a beautiful 
it's a beautiful thing. I mean, I don't have a romantic partner in my life at the moment, which is actually good. <laughs> it's actually really good, it's honestly. Um, but I do feel worthy. And so then yeah. what are the challenges? And I've been thinking a lot about that. What, and a lot of it's just about health and like what the, the, the life that I want for myself going forward. You know, when you've achieved goals and you um, achieve things that you want to achieve, it's like, what's next, you know? And it's not about, you know, I certainly want to make more money and I certainly want to, you know, there's material things. It's not even material, it's things that, like I want to own more property and I want, you know, mm -hmm. things like that. But it's like, how do I want this next part of my life to, how do I want to be in the world and what do mm. I want to contribute and how do I want to step up more and be more present? And a lot of it has to do with my having my health be really fully and securely in place so that I can step into this beautiful life. We're developing new projects and I have, there's wonderful things on the horizon, but I have to be able to fully show up for them. Mm. And I think the lesson though for everybody, everybody out there is that there are beautiful things on the horizon for everybody, but you have to be able to show up for it. It's waiting yes. there. I really believe that everybody's here for a reason and that it is waiting for us, but we have to be able to align with that energy because it's all energy. We have to be able to align with the energy and the reason. And I think too, my life shifted when I started owning my transness, but it also was when I started understanding there was something bigger than me. A year after Candace Kane was on Dirty Sexy Money, I, 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 um, I made these postcards that said, Laverne Cox is the answer to all your transgender acting needs. And I sent it to wow. I sent the postcard to 500 agents. You're a and true marketer, directors. I love it. Um, um, right? I got the idea from this dude. I'd done a movie years earlier, and this dude who was French. And he had been in New York for 25 years, but he kept his French accent. And all of his work was doing like French voiceover. He was playing a French dude in the movie we were doing together. He did a lot of voiceover where he had the French accent. And he said, I forgot his name, but he said, um, Bob, your French connection. He's the answer to all your French acting needs. So I told totally wow. him stole that from him. So I marketed myself as a trans actor, which is, I never would have done that before Candace Kane. But then that led to me doing this reality show called I Want to Work for Diddy in 2008. Mm -hmm. And the only reason I did it was because, well, the day before I, uh, my final interview for I Want to Work for Diddy, I was walking um, in my neighborhood in Midtown Manhattan, and I was harassed by a group of, of Black guys on the street, which is part of my daily life, right? I got harassed pretty much every day. But Har day harassed by, I mean, like, bullying or more like sexually harassment? Was, or uh, Well, it often would start with being catcalled, where, where the guys would be like, hey, mama, you looking sexy today? And then one of the guys would realize I'm trans and say, oh, that's a man and misgender me. And then... That was, I mean, that was just my life. That was like, sure. I, I, I armored up for that living in New yeah, York. Yeah, yeah. But this particular day, one of the guys kicked me. And so uh -uh. that was like, you know, I called the police. <laughs> there was a police Dang. report, whatever. Um, they didn't find the guys. But I like went into this nearby store, called the police, terrified. By the time the police got there, the guys had left gone. the scene. Yeah. Yeah. Um, filed the report. And then the next day was my final interview for I Want to Work for Diddy. And I thought, how powerful it could potentially be to have this hip hop mogul, uh, P Diddy, sort of embrace me on this, his reality show to possibly be his assistant. And maybe that could make some sort of change or inroads in the black community that was har mostly harassing me. And I don't think black folks are more transphobic than anyone else, but I think we harass people that we see, like, you know, crime, you know, black on black crime is this myth, basically, because white people like commit crimes against other white people because they're in proximity with them and black people are in proximity with other black people. And so the crimes happen there. So that but but the I want to work for Diddy moment was me 
choosing to do something that was bigger than me. Doing a reality show at the time, my brother didn't think I should do it. All my friends were like, they're going to Because you were an artist. You're an artist. You're an actor. You're not an artist. I'm an actor. But also in 2008, everything, this is 2008, everything about trans people for the most part, except Candace Cannon, Dirty Sexy Money, was exploitative. It was like spectacle. It was like, let's humiliate the trans person. And everyone thought that that's what they were going to do to me on that show. And I, and I remember saying in my final interview to the um, executives, I'm like, I don't want to be exploited. I don't want this to be, you know, a spectacle. I'm doing this because I want to make a statement and to generate some kind of acceptance. And I was assured by the producers that, that that's not what they wanted to do. That's not what Diddy wanted to do. And it turned out really well, but the lesson, the long story short, from the lesson from that is to be of service. Mm. The lesson from that is that when, when I was of service, that ended up going pretty well. I ended up getting my own show out of it. This, that show wasn't a success. I needed to stop doing reality TV, wasn't my thing. <laughs> But the lesson was to be of service. Mm. And then, so owning my transness and then being of service were the two things that really shifted everything in my life. And the shift felt like all of a sudden it, the alignment happened, right? Because we, we're, we're every, everybody, I think, in their lives, are, if, if you are lucky, you're going to, something, a shift is going to happen and you're going to feel in alignment with an energy that's bigger than you. And that is going to be tied to purpose. It's going to be tied to the reason you're here. And that is a beautiful thing. And I think that is the thing. I really believe that's waiting for everybody. I really do. Mm. And everybody's not meant to sort of, you know, be on television and produce shows or whatever. We're all here for something different. But I think when we can align and with, with that energy, and sometimes it takes a minute. I mean, honestly, like the Orange, Orange is New Black didn't happen until I was 40 years old. And I was about that's to- crazy, be- yeah. I was about to give up acting, actually, because that was the year I got the eviction notice and I was in student loan debt and credit wow. card debt. And I was like, OK, girl, you are 40. Who are you? This acting thing isn't for you anymore. You're trans. Right? Yeah. I mean, at the time, there, there had never been a trans person with a major acting career in the United States. So I'm like, OK, girl, you're delusional. You, you gave it a good shot. I mean, you're 40. Yeah, you get 20 you years of this. Yeah. You try, girl. Let's. Let's get it together. So I bought GRE study materials. Wow. I was looking into grad schools. I was going to go to grad school and like I was thinking journalism, women's studies. I was like, I don't know what. I hadn't figured it out yet, but I was li- trying to figure out grad school. And then the Orange audition happened. I didn't go to grad school. But the fun thing about that, though, is that literally four years after I booked Orange is the New Black, thought I was going to go to grad school, but didn't, I got an honorary doctorate from the new school. Wow, that's great. <laughs> So I, you know, grad school was just acting stardom. That's amazing. (laughs) It's amazing what you've accomplished. And I'm curious what, I've got a few final questions for you. I want to, I could talk to you for hours, but this is, um, what advice would you, because I have a, I think I mentioned to you a few years ago that I have a family member who I love deeply, who is gender Mm nonconforming and they are going through and have been going through a challenging time in the last couple of years, just finished up college and, I'm just curious your advice to your younger self who maybe was confused or struggling, feeling unsure of yourself to people who are afraid to come out uh, as gay, bisexual, people who are afraid to step into being trans, you know, fully publicly, all these different things that people have shame around. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to those individuals today? Oh, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. And I think that like, 
it can you can it can feel isolating and alone. And I think the beautiful thing about 2020 is that we can we can go online. It's not the same as having that friend in real life, but online there's support groups that you're not alone. And I think one can feel alone when you're going through that. Even in 2020, you can feel alone. There you're not. There's support groups online. There's an, a local LGBTQ center in most cities, most major cities in the United States anyway, that you can go and find find a community. You can go and find somebody who is like you or who can support you and accept you. If you can't find somebody who's like you because everybody's different, you can find somebody who can see, who will see you and love you. And until you do that, you can, you, you can start know, knowing for sure inside, there's a light inside you. I, you know, wherever I go, I try to remind trans people that we are anointed, that in indigenous cultures all over the world, there were sacred traditions of third genders, fourth genders, where we were revered members of the culture. If you, in India, we were called Hydra, Native American um, cultures here in the United States, um, um, Two Spirits, um, in Philippines, all over the world, indigenous cultures all over the world, trans people, what we would understand as trans people held a sacred place. You, in, in India, you would not get married or without you know, the blessing of a hijra, or you wouldn't have your baby christened without you know, the blessing of a hijra. So we are sacred, we are anointed, and we just must step into that. We just must step into that and know this inside. Wow. I think through all the years of confusion and messiness that I had, there was something in me that was like, so I knew I was here for something bigger than all of that. And there is a light in there that, that we all have. And we, the, the work is to turn up the light. Ooh. The work is to not let it be dimmed by anything, but actually to turn up the brightness on the light and shine, shine, shine. That, that, is, that is the thing. And as you shine that light. Some people will be blinded by it. Some people cannot take the light. They can't, and that's fine. But, the, but you'll attract the people who can. Mm. And I think that's it's a deep thing too. And I have to remind myself of that as I'm single and dating and just, you know, I'm Laverne Cox and it's like very challenging dating. And I, but I know, I'm sitting here knowing how fabulous I am. <laughs> you know, I, I know how fabulous I am. I know how sexy I am. I know all the things I have to offer. I, I can say that with such certainty now. And so what I know is that everybody can't take the light. And honey, if you can't take this light, then you, you're not right. <laughs> you're not right. I like and that. So, that should be but, on your website. If you, you can't, can't take the light, you're not right. But no, but then, but, but when, but, but that, that doesn't mean I'm going to change the light. I'm going to dim, I'm not going to dim my light. Mm. I'm not going to try to put on a mask to be somebody else. We're just going to, the but right, got, we're going to attract the right energy energetically. And I think people need to know, not to cut, sorry to cut you off there, but to, no, no. to add to that, I think people need to know that when, sometimes when you step into your light and you turn it on, you turn on who you are, you're going to, uh, some people are going to flock to you and you're going to burn a lot of people. They're going to want to go away from you, right? Some people yeah. can't take that. Because light they're not in their light. And, and, and that's what makes me so sad. I mean, I've, I've, I've been meeting men and I just, and it's, I think what's made me really sad about what's going on with a lot of, as I date or whatever, is that they, they're not in their light. They're not in their, they're brilliant. And so then it's like, they can't receive it. Yeah. And it's, that's sad for them. Yeah. <laughs> not sad for me. <laughs> Woo, exactly. <laughs> But I think, I think the, you need, people need to be aware that when you step into that light and who you are, 
it might be free. It, it'll go freeing, but then you might lose a lot of people around you. Yeah. The people and you were performing for and wearing a mask for and having an armor for liked you for that. They don't like you for who you truly are. Yeah. And you're going to lose friends, potentially family members at certain times. Hopefully they come back around, but you've got to be prepared. And that's what I think is scary for a lot of people, the social pressure of losing friendships, family members, yeah. and, and that pain with that, Pain is necessary to become a butterfly. You're we about to, to die be before you can fly. The quest for true belonging is being willing to go it alone. And um, <sighs> Brene Brown, Brave in the Wilderness, honey, she, um, she starts off Brave in the Wilderness with the Maya Angelou quote, I belong everywhere and no place, everywhere and no place, no place at all. Something like that, basically. But, but the Maya Angelou quote is basically about belonging everywhere and no place, but I belong to myself. Ooh, snap. Yeah, That's amazing. and that is the and when you can truly belong to yourself, you can stand alone. You, it's okay to be in the truth and the courage of your convictions because you belong to yourself. Yeah, and we all need belonging as human beings, but that's scary. Everybody's not super enough for that. Yeah, because if we don't truly believe in ourselves, we need the approval of other people to believe in us. And when we fully believe in ourselves and accept who we are and lean into that, we may lose the approval of everyone around us and we need to be ready to stand yeah. alone like that until Absolutely. you can attract the right people, which might take time. Yeah. And this is a, this oh, yeah. is a sermon right here, Laverne, I love this. Isn't uh, that beautiful though? I mean, the last thing I'll say is that, isn't it beautiful though to, to let go of the things that don't serve us? I think it's beautiful when those people drop out of our lives. It's really beautiful. It's, it's dead weight. It's keeping me from flying. Pur purge it. Yeah. Purge what you don't need. I'm yes. excited, I'm excited to, to watch a new documentary yeah. It just came out, Disclosure, yeah. on Netflix, and everyone now has Netflix, so go watch it tonight. Yeah. And when you're watching it, after you listen to this interview, go uh, you know, tag Laverne on her social media while you're watching it and, and share with her what you're learning about it. Please, yes. Um, but it examines how transgender people have been depicted on TV movies for the past century. Why did you want to do this? And why do you think people need to watch it now at this moment? I think the best way to understand, one of the best ways to understand our present is to really have a sense of the past, to have a sense of how we got here. And we have now an unprecedented you know, visibility of trans folks in the media and how do we get here? And um, the film looks at how the media has represented trans folks and how that affects how people treat us and then how we treat ourselves. Um, Glad did a study a few years back that determined that 80% of Americans say they don't personally know someone who's trans. So most of what Americans learn about trans people comes from the media. And so many of those um, representations have been really harmful and have kept trans people in really unfortunate places. What's been so beautiful about getting the reactions from people with this doc is that they're so many films that they loved, like Ace Ventura, Pet Detective, or The Crying Game, or um, Silence of the Lambs, they didn't know that these things were problematic, and now they're understanding that they are. And this isn't about canceling our old films. This isn't like a, you know, censorship thing. It's about an understanding. It's about shifting hearts and minds so that we can ultimately um, get closer to each other and get closer to ourselves. Yeah. Ace Ventura, was that? Well, that was right. It was... Uh... Finkel is Einhorn. Einhorn is Finkel, right? Was that the whole part yeah. you're talking about? Mm -hmm. Wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm excited and to watch this. Zeke, one of the, one of the um, subjects, everyone interviewed in the film is transgender, and most of the crew behind the scenes is also trans. Zeke, uh, one of the folks we, we interview, he said, one of my 
My favorite childhood film ends with the sight of a trans person making everyone vomit. And that's just the fact. That's just like, that's not an, a critical analysis. That's just his favorite film as a child ends with wow. the sight of a trans person making people vomit. Wow. So what do you want people to really learn about when they, when they watch? What do you want them to be mindful of and aware of? What's been so impactful for people is seeing the repetition of the same stories over and over again, the repetition of tropes. And folks don't know the extent to which the media, because the media doesn't just reflect what's going on, it, sh it can shape what's mm -hmm. going on. It can yeah. shape how people see and think about trans folks. And for, a very, for over a hundred years, the media has shaped how Americans think about trans people. And so then once we can understand what that media has done, we can make different media. Mm -hmm. And then we can make different choices now that we have this critical in intervention about how we're gonna treat the trans people that we come in contact with in our regular lives, right? Yeah. So that like we can understand, oh, this is like borderline or even propaganda about trans people, but I can make a different choice. So mm -hmm. it's really about raising consciousness so that we can make different choices, which is what your podcast is about, right? Yeah. Raising consciousness so people can make different choices. That's it. Is there any question you wish people would ask you that they don't ask you? <laughs> people have asked me almost everything. <laughs> that is a good question. I don't know. I mean, I'm in such a place now of gratitude and of, of joy that I get to even come and have a voice. It's so empowering to just come and talk about and like, share my experience and what I've learned that I'm just grateful for that. So it's really ultimately not about me. Laverne is doing, is, is in a pretty good place right now. Thank, yeah. <laughs> thank God. But it's really about all the other trans folks out there yeah. who are struggling for access to employment and to housing and to healthcare who are being harassed on the streets, who are being harassed in school. 78% of trans kids are bullied or harassed in school, 78%. So it's about all of them. And so I, I, what I want everyone to be able to do, and it's not even just for trans folks, is to be able to be in a space where everybody's human. Even if we, even if we politically disagree, right? It's even like not even about black and white anymore it's as much as it's about Republican or Democrat in this world now. Mm -hmm. And it's how can we be in a space where everybody's human? Where like, I, okay, we- Escape to Ocean City, Maryland and discover a place that just feels lighter. Where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group. Where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season. Where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door, where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy. They disagree on this, but you're still human, and I, I want to figure out a way to love you and have empathy for you. That is the, that's what I want folks to be able to do across the board, not just for trans people, but for everybody. Yeah. We're all human beings. And how do we proceed from a place of love? Um, um, one of my favorite quotes is from Dr. Cornel West. He says that justice is what love looks like in public. 
justice is what love looks like in public. Mm. And I mean, could, when you just imagine that, like when you're, when I, my imagination goes to what is justice, what does love in public look like? When I think about public policy, when I think about legislation, when I think about how we treat each other, like, and I think that like, we can't even get to that place often because of the fight, flight, or freeze because of our own trauma. Here we are, trauma and shame. You gotta heal the past. You gotta heal the past. You so always go. Yeah. Man, it's, it's interesting. I did a, uh, I'm going to ask you a couple final questions, but I, I did a podcast recently with a, a doctor named Dr. Mike. And I said, what do, more, what do people need more of in the world? And he said, they need more therapy. Mm. This is a doctor, a medical doctor saying the world needs more therapy. Human beings need therapy. And if we had more therapy, we would be better human beings because we would have, be able to heal our traumas of the past. We'd be have more compassion and empathy for other people. And I thought that was a really interesting perspective from a doctor's point of view, who's treating sickness and disease and ailments every, every day that this is something I think a lot of us all want. We all want to feel loved. We all want to feel accepted. We all want to feel justice and fairness but and all I these different too, things. There's another piece and we take, this, this could take us down a totally different road, but I discovered Dr. Joe Dispenza through your podcast. Through this He's podcast. amazing. Yes. And so much of what he talks about is how stress hormones create disease. Stress hormones over time create disease, right? So then how do you, how, not even knowing how to manage stress, how to reset our nervous systems can create disease, right? So like, so that supports again therapy, right? Like, and there's different kinds of therapy. But then he, he Dr. Joe talks about, I call him Dr. Joe, talks about meditation and talks about, you know, he has his various processes. Um, my my therapist would call what he says um, the best way to uh, predict your future is to create it. My mm -hmm. therapist would call that future template resourcing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I like that future template resourcing. So so again, what is like, I mean, I think that a huge thing I think that's going on in our culture in general is that we, so many of us are traumatized. I think we're um, um, collectively traumatized from like this reckoning we're having around racial oppression. I think seeing black people repeatedly murdered on camera is deeply traumatizing. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, Me Too, the Me Too movement, all the sexual abuse stuff that's come up the collective trauma around that, the collective trauma of a global pandemic, right? That like we, there's trauma on top of trauma on top of trauma. And my therapist defines trauma as too much, too fast, too soon. And so the nervous system doesn't know what to do with that. And yeah. so, mo so many of us, our resilient zones are narrowed and we're, so many of us are in despite, flight or freeze. And in, from that place, we're not in our resilience. We're not in like the pre our prefrontal cortex. We can't make the best decisions in fight, flight or freeze. And so we're attacking. So we're like, we want to blame and somebody else is to blame and we can't be accountable. We can't. So it's like, how do we get our nervous systems out of that trauma, survival, stress place into a place where we can like feel our feet on the ground and so we can like mm -hmm. hear the person in front of us with some love. So that is, that's, that's the word. Well, I think it's, I think especially right now with cancel culture, just being so big and everyone's being canceled for everything from a hundred years ago to 10 years ago to yesterday, <laughs> whatever. It's just yeah. like, we're canceling people. And pe I feel like people are more afraid to just say how they feel in, in hopes of, in hopes of not making a mistake or not saying one thing to be their whole lives to be ruined. Yeah. And so people are more afraid to, 
people are speaking up louder than ever, and then people are more afraid to speak up at the same time. And that makes me so sad. And it's and, and, and what makes me sad as a trans person <laughs> is that a lot of people think it's, that it's my fault, that is, or at least my community's fault, right? So many people are terrified, right, to have a conversation with a trans person because they're afraid of saying the wrong thing. I think what people need to know, at least from Laverne Cox, and I'm not, I'm not an advocate yeah. of, of cancel culture, because I think if when we cancel people, then we don't believe that there's a possibility of them being transformed. But the only way we can be transformed, though, is through vulnerability and, 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 and accountability. We don't know how to be accountable. And so I think that is, that, is, that is the work, too. So how do we lovingly create a space of lovingly critiquing someone? And I think that's the beautiful thing about, one of the beautiful things about Disclosure, our film. We're critical of a lot of films that people love, but I'm not an advocate of discarding those films. I'm an advocate of learning from them and learning how to, and having conversation about it so that we can come to new spaces of critical consciousness. And so if we're canceling people, then we, people aren't getting transformed. But then I think the only way people can be transformed though is through safe space because we go into the fight, flight, or freeze. And the whole safe space thing has been so poo-pooed and so like, call, oh, you liberal snowflakes with safe space. But human beings, if we, so often if we're called racist, so many people, they, that's like a bear in the woods, right? That's the yeah, bear that's in the not woods. not a safe space. That's the bear in the woods. So how do we create a safe space so that we can like, have a conversation about race. And so a lot of people don't feel safe because the bear is in the woods and in cancel culture, that's the bear. I'm gonna be canceled. So we have to create a safe space with love so that people aren't on defense so they actually they can actually hear us. And I, you know, I, one of the things about racism, since we're going there, is I think we're all racist. I am a black woman born and raised in Mobile, Alabama grew up internalizing all these negative ideas about myself as a black person, about other black people that I learned from my, from, I think, a racist culture, a racist mm -hmm. ideology, a racist media, a history of racism and white supremacy in the United States. I internalized that stuff. I had to then unlearn that. I had to decolonize my mind. If I, as a black person, can internalize racist ideas about myself and other black people, isn't it possible and probably likely that somebody white can do the same thing? And so then calling someone racist is not the worst thing that you can do to someone because we all are. It's like, so it's not even, that's not even useful. It's like this mindset is racist or this um, language based on the history of white supremacy in America is racist or this institution because it works this way is racist and that becomes useful and then because then we, the human being is the human being we are not, not and we're not victims and this is not and acknowledging systemic racism is not playing victim it's like this is the system because there's always a possibility of resistance there's been resistance to white supremacy since the beginning of this country. So there's always the possibility of resistance. So in that space of resistance, with love, we can be transformed. But we, but, but, but say you're racist and then like that becomes this thing that someone is instead of something that they've internalized that can't be changed. Mm -hmm. I think that is the thing. And some people don't want to change. You know, some people want, have, have internalized this stuff. They believe it's the truth. They don't want to change. And that's fine. I think we can't, you know, make people do anything they don't want to do. But I think it's an invitation. I'm inviting people because I think like, what, I, what I know about racism, what I know about transphobia and all these things, and even ableism, I, I'm able-bodied, but the things I've internalized about people with disabilities is that that keeps me, that keeps me from myself. Mm. I think white, white supremacy 
I mean, certainly there are people who are in power, right? Who are, who are you know, there are people, there are elites who benefit from to using race, you know, to pit, you know, working class people against, you know, people of color. There are people who benefit from that um, into to sort of social hierarchy. But there are a lot of white folks who really aren't benefiting from, from white supremacy. They're basically feeling superior <laughs> to like people of color, but are not benefiting. And, and, and people in power are basically like using that to keep them. I mean, if we really look historically, right? Because um, I've been doing all this research on policing in the United States. Mm -hmm. During slavery, most white folks in the South did not own slaves, right? You had to be kind of rich to own slaves. But every white person in the South was tasked, particularly white men, were tasked with making sure if a slave was like out somewhere, where are you going? Where's your master? What are you doing? So that every white person was tasked, they had slave patrols. And even if you weren't officially on the slave patrol, you were tasked with, make, with policing the bodies of black people. Right. And so those white working class people who didn't own slaves were sort of felt, well, at least I'm better than these, you know, people who we're enslaving, who they call savages. And they call them savages as a way justification for enslaving them. Right. So that's how this country has worked from the beginning, that people who are not don't really have power. White work, I would say white working class people have been used by people in power to say, oh, well, you're better than these, these black people. Let's police these, the bodies of black people, right? Um, and you can be in, in on this even though you don't have the material privilege. And that is the, that's pitting, really, it's pitting working class people against each other, it's pitting marginalized mm -hmm. people against each other, divide and conquer. It's really sad. And it's like something we can let go of though. We can make a choice. Like it's, it's so beautiful when as I, all the white folks I'm seeing making choices to live differently, right? To acknowledge this, this history and to say, I can, I can make a different choice today. Yeah. And we can find a way to come together and love, e love each other across these differences. Because ultimately, when we think about power structure, there are certain people in power and, and, and they just use race, they use gender, they use trans people, right? All this anti-trans legislation is they're just using us to try to pit people against each other so that they can remain in power. And ultimately, where the, the resources, we're not even having a conversation about Medicare for all. We're not even having a conversation about redistribution of resources because we got, we got it, we got, you know. <laughs> We, got, we, we can't have that conversation, right? We can't make sure that all the homeless people who are homeless here in LA have a place to live. We can't have that conversation, but we can have the race conversation and we can like take down statues and yeah, we can have that conversation all day. Corporations can get behind Black Lives Matter, which is amazing. Like it's great on one level, but then it's like, but are you paying your workers, you know, like a living wage? What's, mm -hmm. what's, what's going on? Anyway, girl, I've got <laughs> go down the rabbit hole. <laughs> but I think so much of that comes down to there's the macro political piece of it. But then there's a piece of like of human beings and human behavior and, and the feeling of wanting to belong, the feeling of mm -hmm. wanting and, and needing love and, 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 and trauma and scarcity. And that just to the trauma and scarcity stuff is not divorced from politics. It's not. It's like all of, you know, I'm so into my own sort of self-care and my psychological and emotional well-being. But I've always understood that it's not divorced from a white supremacist society, from a patriarchal society, from a transphobic society. That does not mean I'm a victim. It doesn't mean I'm powerless. But it does mean that I have to do some work 
on myself. And then that there are structures in place too that have like, I mean, it's a miracle that I have the career that I do um, in the face of all these things. And some people would want to suggest that that proves that there's no racism, that there proves there's no transphobia, that these things are not real. But I would, but what, what America's always done is elevate one or two people, right? Say, oh, you know, we had the first black president. Oh, this black person is exceptional. And so we're, we're good, like, mm -hmm. right? America's always done that. But the majority of people who have of color are still struggling. The majority of poor and working people are still struggling. The majority of trans people are still struggling. Women still make, you know, pennies on the dollar that, that, that a man makes. Um, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. it's not enough to just elevate one person or a few people and say, oh, we're good. That's just, that's the way the system works. We've, system has a lot of work to do and so each, <laughs> each human being out there in the world for sure, on a personal level. With, and it I'm, starts with each of us though. We can exactly. change this, this, it starts with each of us. Absolutely, which I think there's, there's a lot of good that's happening right now in terms of awareness and creating that awareness. And like you said, I hope, I hope we can get to a safer space of being able, people being able to talk with each other without yeah. shutting them down and fighting, but actually being, okay, well, let me learn more and let's connect. And I think it's about, and I, this happened to me recently. I, this dude that I matched with on a dating app, he was posting a lot of things that um, seemed very politically conservative, very anti-Black Lives Matter, very, you know, and I was sort of like, and I just, and, and I saw this in, in my timeline and what, what it, it, it made me think of a lot of things. Ultimately, like a, most of what I see on my timeline on social media is all like people who, are, who would agree with me. That's interesting. We know those are algorithms. We know that's, you know, what they're doing over in Silicon Valley. But then there's also the piece of like this, do I, do I, I had an impulse to block. I'm like, do I block him? And I'm like, wait, what's that about? Mm. I'm like, you know, I like, I made all these assumptions about who he was based on these things he posted. And that there was no curiosity. And then I was like, He's a human being. I, we haven't met for a date. He didn't seem interested, but I'm following him on social media. So I was just like, and so I would just watch, I watched his stories for a while. I watched some of the things he was he posted. And then he actually posted this um, sort of debunking of a video I posted about um, structural racism. And so I was like, oh, do you, and I was just, do you agree with him? And then I just like started asking questions and I tried to just not be judgmental and create space for him so I could try to understand him. And then I was like, you know, I feel like we might disagree on a lot of things, but I want to try to understand where you're coming from. And I want to, I, I just, I, I would like to think that I could have relationships with people who don't agree with me on everything. This is, this is what I, I love that you said this because I, I feel like I bring out a lot of different unique perspectives on my show. I've had 970 episodes mm. uh, over seven years and sometimes I bring people on that might be more controversial to the general audience that I have. Mm -hmm. And then they just come at me like, how could you even think of putting this person on your platform and sharing their perspective? And I'm like, listen, I'm not saying, I think it's important, for, like you said, for us to try to understand and listen to people from all perspectives because they have unique experiences. They have unique lessons, uh, whether they're right, wrong, good, bad, Whatever it may be, I think it's important for us to connect. And, and I'm always trying to speak to people who maybe don't have my perspective as well that I want to persuade to having a more positive mindset or thinking in a different way. So I think it's important for us to have those conversations with all people yeah. and not just I, speak to our own community and say, yes, we all believe in the same thing and be against everyone else. Mm -hmm. I don't think, and I, and I don't have any 
aspirations even that I would change his mind. I think a right. lot of us are so deeply dug in to where we are mm -hmm. politically, especially when it comes to certain kind of politics, particularly when it, it, it seems like it's a sort of out of sort of particular um, right wing mm -hmm. propagandistic kind of kind of places. But I but he's still a human being. Yeah, and I just that's my that, my thing is like, how do we get to this human place? Yes. Is there a way to get to a human place, even though we might not we might not agree on something and so i think there's like there is the thing of like you know sort of people with their agendas they come on and just pushing they want they're pushing their agenda and then there's like the a, a, a slippery slip slippery slip slippery slippery or the place um <laughs> a more sort of fluid place that's a better word yes fluid place where we can have an exchange of ideas and where mm -hmm. we can kind of say, well, there's, what about this? I sent him, he sent me all these videos, you know, about trying to debunk um, structural racism. And I sent him a video about, about the policing and whatnot, because he was sending, you know, FBI statistics about like, you know, who's doing all the murders and stuff. And then I sent him, I was like, okay, well, I sent him a video about stop and frisk. And so I have yet to hear a response about this stop and frisk <laughs> video. I sent him a podcast that, um, from, from Throughline that's amazing, that looks at the history of policing. Um, what is it, Khalil Jabrad, Jabrad Muhammad um, is interviewed on uh, this Throughline episode about history of policing in the country, and he has yet to respond, and that's fine, it's fine. Mm -hmm. I was very open to his ideas and I tried to engage, and it was, what was really interesting in that Throughline um, podcast is how his how um the government started using statistics to sort of say oh you know black people are inferior and they found ways to like do the, use statistics it was, it was deep um it was really deep so i i but at the same time it's like i'm gonna i want to operate from a place of love yeah it's like if you resentment and hate is like you know giving <laughs> you know um taking a poison pill and thinking you're gonna like you know right, right. The other person. yeah exactly I, lo I love everything you're saying, Laverne. I'm so grateful we had time to chat. I, I could talk for more hours, but I want to respect you your need time. To stop, yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to ask you the final two questions that I okay. asked. And I'll be succinct. End. I'll be succinct. <clears> no, you're good. I, I love that. I'll keep listening forever for you. But, okay. uh, but I want to honor your time and everyone listening. Uh, but before I ask the final two questions, <clears throat> make sure you guys go check out the new documentary called Disclosure on Netflix. Check it out right now. I think it's going to be very eye-opening for you and share it with Laverne and on your social media channels. Make sure you follow Laverne on social media. You're pretty active on Instagram. I believe on Twitter as well, you're active. And it's just your- Somewhat on Twitter, not as much yeah. on Twitter. But mostly, mostly Instagram. So yeah. share this with a friend, tag her uh, on Instagram and, and share this episode with people if you enjoyed it. And, and I want to acknowledge you before I ask you the final two questions for your incredible- courage lover and your courage to share your voice to 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 step into who you are in face of adversity in face of criticism in face of uh bullying shaming all the different things that you've had to experience as a kid and in an entertainment world that you're in and being able to do it gracefully over the last decade i would say i'm sure you're not you know you're not perfect and you make mistakes but in the way you continue to show up and come from a place of wanting to understand people as well and not shame people, which I think is really refreshing to hear from your perspective that you don't want to just automatically shame people, but you want to try to understand and love people. Oh, yeah. And I'm just really grateful that you're alive. I'm grateful that you're here as a human being in this world and that you can share all this wisdom with us. So I'm just, I'm grateful for everything that you stand for and, and for this time and, and our friendship. And hopefully in, when this is all over, we can hang out again for lunch. Yeah. Um, 
this question I ask everyone at the end is called uh, the three truths question. Mm. So imagine you're as old as you want to be, but it's your last day on this physical earth and you've accomplished every dream you can imagine, whether it be your career or with social justice, uh, things that you see come to light with anything, family, relationships, all of it, it comes true. But for whatever reason, you've got to take all of your life's work with you to the next place. And so no one has access to your words, your videos, your content, anything. But you get to leave behind three things you know to be true about your life experiences and the lessons you would want to leave to the world. What would you say are those three lessons you'd want to leave all of us or what I call your three truths? That is, that's hard, Lois. How am I missing this on your podcast before? <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I'm not prepared. Um, three things, my three truths. What's your, what's your heart saying? Uh, top of mind, top of heart, your authentic self you, thing. You are here for a reason. Mm-hmm. And your work is to align with the energy of the universe and with that reason. Um, and it is tied to being of service mm-hmm. and it is tied to love and passion. Worthiness is a birthright. Worthiness is a birthright. You, you can move through life's challenges with grace if you don't put your worthiness on the line. Worthiness is a birthright. Take it off the table. I, all, it all feels like it's about connecting to energy that's bigger than me that mm-hmm. right now in this moment everything it feels like it's about the connection to something bigger it's interesting thinking about being a, alone <laughs> and living in a condo all by myself and feeling connected through this documentary and through zoom and and feeling connected to energy that is bigger than me and that um that there is that there's a life force that is so much bigger than you that can take it can pull you through if you just connect with it. It's right there. It is just right there. And you can just connect with it. And that energy force actually moves into the other life, right? It moves into, into every sphere of the universe. It really does. It, it, it is a, it's, it's, so that is what I, my invitation to, it would be to, for, for everyone to connect with the energy that is right there, that is mm. tied to every other life for us mm, i love that love that okay a final question <laughs> final question for you okay it's what's your definition of greatness oh fulfilling um your higher powers or the universe's uh, plan for you aligning what you do in the world with a bigger an energy that is greater than you mm. and with a that is aligned with purpose that is yeah. greatness Laverne, you are a gift. Thank you for bright, uh, for shining your brightness, your light, very bright. I appreciate you very much, my friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend, so much for listening to this episode. Make sure to share this with someone that you think will find it valuable. Again, you have the ability and the power to change someone's life today by sending them this link. Just copy and paste the link on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to your podcast and send it to a friend. Text someone, post it on your Instagram story, tweet it out, put it in a WhatsApp group chat, whatever you got to do, share this with a friend and leave us a review. We love to see reviews and ratings from people that listen to us every week. We share those with our internal team and it always helps us spread the message of greatness more 
to the audience on Apple. So make sure to go to Apple Podcasts, click that subscribe button, leave us a review, and help spread the love. And make sure to check out the podcast description for links and resources to other impactful podcasts. And you can check out the full show notes at lewishouse.com slash 974 as well to see everything else we've talked about from this episode. And I want to leave you with a quote from author Vivian Green, who said, Life isn't about waiting for the storm to pass. It's about learning to dance in the rain. And right now you might be feeling that there's a lot of rain. There might be a lot of lightning and thunder and earthquakes and hurricanes. Lots of different things happening in your life right now. And it's not about waiting for it to end. We don't know when certain things are going to end. It's about learning how to experience life to the fullest in spite of it, in the messiness, while you develop, while you learn, while you grow. And I'm so grateful for Laverne for sharing with us and teaching us how she's done this in her own life. If you haven't heard recently, you are loved, you matter, and you are worth it. I'm so grateful for you. And you know what time it is. It's time to go out there and do something great. Escape to Ocean City, Maryland, and discover a place that just feels lighter, where every day feels like Saturday and French fries are a food group, where flip-flops are always in fashion and seafood is always in season, where the boardwalk is bustling and the beach is right outside your door where you can rise with the tide and feel like a kid again. Ocean City, Maryland, somewhere to smile about. Book your trip at Oceocean.com. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than a life policy. It's about the promise and the responsibility that comes with being a new parent, being there day and night, and building a plan for tomorrow, today. For the ones you'll always look out for, trust Amica Life Insurance. Amica. Empathy is our best policy.